How lovely, Lord, is your dwelling place. You are the Lord of hosts, and our soul longs and yearns for your courts. Our heart and our flesh cry out to you, the living God, who can sustain us with life. So we ask that you satisfy us tonight with your splendor. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening. I will be in Second Chronicles chapter 1 through 9. We're looking at the reign of Solomon, his building of the tabernacle. You might remember that um, Chronicles is really trying to connect a golden chain between the Jews before exile to the Jews after exile, letting them know that the same God is working through the same lineage to bring the same promises to the world, that he's not given up on them. So tonight, we want to begin with a question that Solomon was asked. I want you to imagine that you go down to the thrift store, your thrift store of choice, whether that's in Cedar Glen or Twin Peaks or wherever. And in the thrift store, you're scanning through a variety of utensils in the kitchen, kitchen utensils. And then you come upon the teapots and you realize, I need one of these. And you're looking at them and you're picking some up. I'm never going to drink five cups of tea in one sitting. And then um, you're picking up this one, and this one looks cracked. And, and then you pick up this one, and it looks really intriguing because there's this beautiful design on it. And so you begin to rub the dust off of the teapot, and then you don't know what happened next because suddenly the dust turns into this glorious golden glow, and you feel surrounded by it as if with smoke. And then this big macho man says, What? Do you wish? And you realize that you just rubbed a lamp, a golden magical lamp with a genie. And I would be terrified. I think these stories have for years and generations captivated people in all their various forms about genies giving wishes because there's a sense where some of us may think we know what we would wish for and some of us are terrified of the results of getting what we wish for. I'm of the latter. I would never know what to do with the genie because I have this fear that I'm like James and John in Mark chapter 10. They're going on the road to Jerusalem and Jesus tells them, look, it's going to be real bad in Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. Three days I'll raise from, I'll be raised from the dead. But just so you know, this is coming. And James and John say, right. So about that, um, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He's literally posing himself as a genie. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, we want to sit on your throne in glory, one at the right and one at the left. And I can't imagine how Jesus didn't laugh out loud at that request. Um, but he does tell them, look, it is not mine to grant this to you, but you will have to go through the baptism that I'm baptized with and suffer, drink the cup that I am to drink. And James and John don't seem to really have sync, synchronicity between their um, surface desires and their inner desires. They think they want things, but they haven't thought through what is going to be the consequence of actually getting what we want. Because do we really want what we think we want? You might think that you want wealth to bless the world, but is your heart actually capable and strong enough and ready to receive a bunch of wealth? Or is the wealth going to change you? 
-hmm. Right? We don't actually know what's good for us, and it's dangerous to have the power to determine what is good for me. And I think Solomon has the same fear. He understands that, wow, God just came to me and asked, what do I want to, what do you want me to do for you? And Solomon does not ask for gold. He does not ask for girls. He does not ask for glory. He asks instead for wisdom. Wisdom to fulfill what God commanded to David. In other words, wisdom to build the temple that God told David, your son will build. That's a really honorable position to be in. So, um, Chronicles is basically, St. Jerome called it a chronicle of the whole divine history. And this is, yep, the history of the Jewish people, but this is also the history of what's to come. Because remember, Chronicles is the end of the Hebrew Bible, so we're at the end of our Old Testament study, and Chronicles is looking at uh, Israel's history and idealizing it. There's not, all the sins of Israel are not in Chronicles like they're in Kings. It's an ideal version of their history because Chronicles wants to push them toward their future glory. So this is really a book about the future. It's using the past to say, look, God has given us his rich heritage, move forward. And so we have the whole divine history as we continue to become links in this chain. We are part of this genealogy. We're part of the kingdom of God being built. And tonight, as we see, we're part of the temple being put together. Solomon's temple is continuing to be built. So the people that Chronicles is writing to are asking, look, we just left fabulous Babylon and now we are in hillbilly country Jerusalem. It's nothing like it used to be. Have we made a mistake? Are we going to make it? Because everyone's just quitting on the covenant around us. And the chronicler says, yes, you will make it. Look at your history. You've been here before. You can do this. The future is going to be just as glorious, actually better, as we know from the New Testament, better than all of this. Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here. These are things that we get to look forward to, the chronicler is saying. So, There's a condition, though. We'll be all right, but we must choose. We must choose the wisdom of worship. So God comes to Solomon. What do you want? I want wisdom to build the house of worship. That's his answer. Chapter 1, verse 1. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, To the commanders of the thousands, of the hundreds, to the judges, and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses, and Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness was there. But David had previously brought the ark of God up from kirith to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. So right now the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle is still over in Gibeah. So there's sort of these two places of worship at the moment. This is going to be reconciled very soon. But Solomon goes to Gibeah, uh, where the original altar is. Verse 5 tells us that. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur, her had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. They sought out this altar. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. This is fantastic. We just last week, the close of First Chronicles has David dying. 
This is Solomon's very first act in 2 Chronicles 1. His very first act is to gather the leaders of the nation and to worship God with a thousand burnt offerings. First act, worship. He worships before he reigns. He worships before he reigns. This is his first act of reigning is let's worship God. What he understands is something that we forget too quickly. It's that worship forms our desires. Worship forms our desires. Now, you may not worship what you think is the problem. We say we worship God, we do lip service to God, but then ultimately what we actually adore, what we're actually offering our burnt offerings to, is maybe uh, college football. <laughs> Sorry, Grace, just had to bring it up so someone said it. Grace is here, she doesn't worship college football, but <laughs> but um, it might be college football, it might be our appearance, it might be all kinds of the idols that we can be um, sucked into in this world. And when you're actually worshiping these things, these things form you. You become like the things that we worship. We become like the people we're worshiping with. There's this power in worship that forms the heart and it teaches us what to desire. We don't think our way into desiring things. We don't say, I want to desire God, therefore you're going to suddenly desire God. That's not how it works. If you continue to worship food and eat and eat and eat, while you say, I want to love God, you're going to be formed by food and it's going to continue to pull your stomach and you're not actually going to be pulled by God. What we worship is what forms us. And Solomon understands the most important thing he can do before he rules the country is to have right worship so that his desires can be rightly formed. This is what he's after. Now, in Chronicles, Solomon does not marry 700 women and have 300 concubines. It's actually kind of interesting that the chronicler is trying to present to us the Solomon who was to be but never was. In other words, the chronicler is looking past Solomon. He's seeing the one greater than Solomon to come, and he's encouraging the people. So we can learn something from this Solomon, indeed. Um, By the way, I think that Solomon's fall into um, all of these, the way that the, the, the wives led him away from the Lord, it really just shows us that no human can ever sit on the throne of God's kingdom. It's just too much power and it's too much stress that even the greatest wisest solomon couldn't do it this is why we need the son of god to sit on the throne and it's all looking forward um worship forms desire um so worship of god then leads us to beauty and glory we'll see so in verse seven in that night god appeared to solomon and said to him ask what i shall give you boom here you go i'm the genie only get one wish though just one And so Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Oh, Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. So what he wants is the word to David. David, you will have a descendant on the throne forever. This is remember 2 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17. I'm doing good tonight. I'm not saying Corinthians. I'm doing really well. Uh, 2 Chronicles 17. You will have a descendant on the throne forever and your own son from your own loins. I don't think it says loins, but um, from your own body, uh, he will build the temple that you can't build because you have another job to do. Subdue the land from the enemies. 
So David does it. Now Solomon wants to take up his part, his link in the golden chain. He says, ah, this is a big task. You're a big God. This needs to be a big temple. I don't want to mess this up. Give me wisdom to fulfill what you promised to David. So verse 10, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. God, I'm in over my head. And God answered Solomon, because this was your heart and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you and have not even asked for long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and reigned over Israel. And then the last few verses show us the splendor and wealth of Solomon that follows from this act of worship. Worship, if we worship rightly the true God, he gives us glory and beauty this is what he works in us because he is glory and beauty and he forms us to be a people bless you of glory and beauty so that's chapter one he starts with worship chapter two he then moves with invitation to the nations solomon does not want this temple just to be some little private enterprise of israel he invites the nations to participate. We see this in his asking Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, who had the bunch of cedar forests, to um, participate in the temple building. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Now Solomon pur- uh, purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. And Solomon sent a word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as you dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for the burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. And yet... Who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? What a great view of God Solomon has. This is just a place for us to recognize God. He's better and bigger than this. But okay, so he goes on and he asks Hiram to send him the cedar wood. He also asks Hiram to send him someone who's skilled in carvings and engravings. And so Hiram sends and verse, Hiram writes a letter back and says, Blessed be the Lord who has given such a worthy son to take the throne of David. And then in verse 13, he says, Now, this is Hiram speaking, Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Hiram Avi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. And his father was a man of Tyre. So this guy is half Israelite, half Tyre, right? Tyre-ish? Tyre? Retired? No, just kidding. Um, He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's mixed. And so here we've got this participation of the kingdom of Tyre in the building of 
the temple. And this is beautiful because I, I, I'm going to crystal, crystallize this a little bit. Um, but it, you, can, you can see here an invitation to Hiram from Solomon to be part of those whom Philippians chapter 2 says, at the name of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's giving him an invitation to be part of this. Um, and so Hiram, we don't know the status of his belief in Yahweh, but clearly he is open to working with Solomon. And Solomon is just saying, hey, I want, I want this God to be known in all the earth. So there's an invitation. And here's something that we need to understand. It might unsettle you at first to think, what? Only, there weren't just Jews working on the temple of the Jewish God? What is this? Outsiders, pagans are working on this too? Um, this is what we need to understand. Is that a temple, remember, is not just a building, it's a people. A temple is a people. And a temple, the temple of God, the church, is not a collection of like-minded people who applaud one another for liking the same things. That's not what the true temple of God is, although unfortunately many churches tend to take on the same shape and likes as each other. Um, we tend to want people, we tend to want to fellowship with people who vote the same way we vote, watch the same news we watch, or people who um, are in the same, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? Social, yeah. Yes, that bracket, the same social level as us, um, people who have the same eschatology as us, who have the same expression of the spirit as us. And that's not at all a temple, that's called a club. And then we just look suspiciously at people who don't quite fit the doorway we've created. Ooh, they had a shuffle in sideways. We're suspicious. <laughs> A temple is rather, it's not like-minded people, it's Christ-minded people. We do have a likeness, but it's Christ. And Christ is so diverse. Christ teaches us, who are completely separate and individually saved by him, to grow into unity so that I am no longer the same Brandon James McCulloch I was when I was by myself, but now I'm taking on character traits and qualities and love and, and, and unity from other people in the body. And I'm growing beyond myself. And you're growing beyond yourself as we connect one another. As, as Peter says, First Peter 2, we're living stones in the temple and we must be fitted together. And together we become more than we are. This is a Christ minded temple that we're going after and solomon is just opening the door and saying hey if you want to be part let's be part we're not closing the door to you even though you are from tyre and i'm from israel so brothers and sisters there will be differences and i love that there are differences in our church politically and there are differences in us eschatologically, and there are differences, I know, even in Calvary Chapel, it's amazing. And there are differences in us in expressions of the Spirit. These are all good things. Some of us are way more Pentecostal than others, and some of us are way less Pentecostal than others, um, more Stoic. And um, None of these are right or wrong. It's meant to be moved by the Spirit of God through the mind of Christ so that's chapter 2, the invitation. Uh, chapter 3 is the temple. I'm sorry, uh, chapters 3 through 7 is the temple. So chapters 3 and 4 is the construction. We see more of using of the nations because in verse 1, we're reminded that David purchased the land for the temple from Ornan the Jebusite. Who are the Jebusites? They're people who lived in Canaan. They're the people who owned Jerusalem until they were conquered by David. 
because they made fun of David's men and said, even the lame people can't beat us up, and then David beat them up. Um, uh, the Jebusites are now involved in the temple because of Ornan's property that David bought. Um, so chapters 3 and 4, we see that guy from Tyre, Hiram, Avi. He, uh, it describes some of the work he and Solomon are doing to put things together. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, we have... So we saw the construction, but in 5 verse 2, we then move to the dedication. So the temple's built. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 is the dedication ceremony. And we're going to look at a little bit of this because we, next week, are going to be following this pattern. So when you come in here and we worship together, our order of things are going to be a little topsy-turvy, if you will. They're going to be following this pattern here. And I want to go through it so you know what to expect and why some of the things that are going to happen are going to happen. Um, so chapter 5, verse 2. So Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. And the the Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were brought before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place, which I grew up calling it the Holy of Holies. That's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings. It just kind of now describes the Holy of Holies. And then it says that the poles, which they carried the Ark, were sticking out. But they were so long. Love this. Because here... The temple's been built. It's now time to bring the ark, which David brought to Jerusalem, now into the Holy of Holies. And they learn from David. They get it right. They don't pull it on a cart with an ox. This time they remember to carry God's presence the way God asked them to. So they bring it in with the poles. And um, so the ark of God is there in the Holy of Holies. This is the first act. And this is the first thing that we will do next Sunday. By the way, I think I might have just totally skipped over some information. Um, we're, we're having, for those who haven't heard yet, we're, we're going to be dedicating this room as our future sanctuary. Because when we first came down here, we weren't entirely sure if this was our future sanctuary. We're pretty sure it is. So we're going to be dedicating this space for worship. Which we were never, we never really did that before. And it was always used for so many different retreats and stuff. You never knew what was happening in there. But um, this is mostly for chapels at the school, uh, worship band class, and then our church. And I want to dedicate the space and that, so that we can make it ours. And I want you guys to come on Sunday with your prayers of dedication, your, your encouragements or exhortations to one another. What do we want this house of worship to look like? We get to come and we get to bring our offerings. So the first thing we'll do is what Solomon does. He brings the ark of God into the Holy of Holies. There's a procession in which they are carrying it on the poles and the priests are sacrificing animals along the way so that as the ark goes forward, it's touching holy ground all the way to the Holy of Holies. Now, 
How do you do that? No, we are not going to let animals bleed out on our carpet. We're not. But that's not what God's asking for anyways. The Holy of Holies in Christian worship for 2,000 years has been understood as Holy Communion. That because it embodies, whether symbolically or literally, there's, of course, debates on that in church history, uh, but it, it embodies the presence of Christ. And we will therefore... Um, on that Sunday, we will have a procession where it's brought forward. It's the Ark of God being brought to the Holy of Holies. Because Christ, Hebrews tells us that when Christ was crucified on the cross and his body was ripped, that the veil was ripped so that we can enter the Holy of Holies. So every Sunday, when we take up the bread, and it says, and then Jesus broke it and we break it, this symbolizes the breaking of the veil and that God has made a way through Christ to come to his Holy of Holies. Um, so we will begin with um, the bread and cup coming forward, and um, um, then we will, um, there'll be a little bit of confession of sins, and then we will do what they do next. So by the way, just so you know, when we bring that forward, we're not used to processions, right? We do that like on Easter, the Easter vigil's about it. So there will be one other. You guys are, it'll be mostly just someone carrying it forward, but just so you know, that's why we're going to do that next week. Um, then they sing. Verse 11 it says that when the priest came out of the holy place, for all the priests were presented who were presented um, had consecrated themselves without regard of their divisions. So they're all one at this point. And then it, it goes on to talk about uh, they had cymbals, harps, lyres. They stood east of the altar with 120 priests with trumpets. And then they were singing in the middle of verse 13, for he is good for his, his steadfast love endures forever. So I'd like us to sing for he is good as steadfast love endures forever but we will also sing um songs as we usually do um but then look what happens after they sing it says that the house the house of the lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the lord filled the house of god the ark comes in, they sing and celebrate, God is with us, and then the cloud fills the, the temple. So we will then light our candle to symbolize the, the, the glory cloud being here. Um, we'll light the candle at that point, this candle, um, at that point in the service, bless you. Um, and then fourth, we see that Solomon addresses the people. So I will be addressing the people right after that. So it says, Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. The Lord bless thee. Probably very likely that one, because that's what the priests bless the people with in numbers. That's the only blessing we see them actually singing. Um, so he blesses the people. Then he says in verse four, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my servant saying, and then he starts to explain what brought him up to this moment to build the temple. Um, and gives them some theology. God chose this place for us. And so he speaks to them briefly. I will speak to you more briefly than maybe usually I do. Um, then fifth in verse 12, it's the prayer of dedication. Solomon gets on his knees before the people. He raises his hands. And the rest of chapter 6 is his lengthy prayer of dedication. We will pray this prayer. So we will be going over that next week.
He then ends in verse 41 and 42 with Psalm 132. Those two verses are portions of Psalm 132. We will also then, um, we will do a call and response from Psalm 132 at the end of that prayer. Okay, then, sixth, the, the moment of climax happens. He finishes the prayer. They finish singing Psalm 132, and then fire descends from heaven and consumes the offerings on the altar. So you guys will be consumed by a blowtorch. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, so verse 1 of chapter 7, And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks. That's optional for you. We don't all have the physical ability to do that or the uh, dignity, I guess, to do that. Um, and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's cool. So, the way uh, I envision us to symbolize fire descending is, remember the menorah we bring out for the big church days like Easter and uh, Epiphany? We'll have the seven candle menorah. We'll light all seven. That'll be the, it's, it looks bright when it's up here. It's like, it'll probably blind me, but um, we'll have the seven candles lit to symbolize God's fire descending on his people. And this is like Pentecost, by the way. This is what it means when the tongues of fire come on his people is that they are the altar. They are the temple and the fire is descended on them. So what that means is after we symbolically demonstrate this with the menorah, we will then anoint one another, the temple of the Holy Spirit, putting oil on each other's foreheads instead of the mark of the beast. Um, And so I will anoint someone. They will then anoint someone. It'll be the golden chain, each of us anointing the other, declaring you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God's fire will fill. We are the stones. We're dedicating this room, yes, but we're dedicating ourselves because we are the stones of the temple. So then it concludes, well, it's actually two more. So number seven almost concludes uh, in seven verse four, the offerings of the people. It, it numbers the offerings and they're just overwhelmed. The temple's overwhelmed with the offerings. Um, if you want to give monetary offerings to help us beautify this place a little more, that'd be cool. Um, but that's not what we're going for. Um, that would obviously be appreciated. But um, we're going for in offerings, your offerings to God being our prayers of dedication, our exhortations to one another to be the temple of God. I want you guys to have the floor at that point. We've been anointed as the temple of God. So be the temple of God. Be the royal priesthood. <laughs> and then finally, 7 verse 8. We see that at that time, Solomon held the feast for seven days. It didn't tell us what day of the seventh month all this started, but we know that it bleeds into the um, Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. So they have a seven-day feast. And, Which is now. We're going to. Yeah. Wow, that's ironic that we're overlapping. I guess we'll be a little bit off, won't we? So yeah, the Feast of Booths. Um, so they feast. They eat. We're going to eat first. We're going to eat the most important meal, communion. And then we will break and go to our... What's next week? What are you bringing? Potluck. Potluck. You're bringing food. Okay, so we're going to have our potluck. And that will conclude our service dedication. Yay! Amen! Wow, that sounds like a great... I was just reading this. I'm like, this is possible. And I bounced it off of Tyler and Brittany. And they're all like, yeah... 
just seems like a good order of service. So that's what we're doing. Yay. All right. You're excited. Everyone else is just like, okay, I won't be here next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So that is what Solomon does. Now, um, I want to, uh, before we cover chapters eight and nine, I want to give you a short summary of the story of the temple. Because it gets overlooked. We're kind of like, oh yeah, the temple, blah, blah. Oh yeah, the church is a temple. We kind of have this surfacey like understanding of it. But what is a temple? What are temples for? And what is the story? The Bible is actually full of the theme of the temple. So I want to briefly just kind of cover this with us. And what we see in the story of the temple is that the Bible cycles through three stories of up, down, up. Think of like a V, up, down, up. It does this three times. So it's like a W with an extra wing. Um, in other words, what the up, down, up is, is you have a temple, you have a fall, you have a temple, you have a fall, you have a temple. So temple, fall, temple, fall, temple. That's your cycle of three. Um, so what you start with in the Bible is one, you start with Eden, the garden of Eden. What made Eden a place of delight was that God walked with humanity in the garden. They were one. There was no division of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth intersected right there in Eden. God ruled over creation from Eden. And the humans had full access. There was no sacrifice to get to God. The tree of life was his throne. And we came to this throne to receive life from him. And then he gives us the power to go and expand this garden to the ends of the earth. He wanted it to grow outward. I don't know the t- you got, if you want the details on this, go back to when we were in Genesis, somewhere on our podcast, scroll all the way back like three or four years ago, find Genesis 2, and I'm sure we went into super, super detail there. We did. I'm not sure. We did. Um, uh, so temples are exactly what Eden was. Temples are the place of intersection between heaven and earth. That's what Eden was. The whole place, God was just with humans. There's perfect unity. Um, even Adam and Eve are described as priests. When he says to work the, t- uh, to work the garden and to keep it, these are two Hebrew words which are only used together in conjunction with the duties of priests in the book of Numbers. So he's literally describing them with priestly duties in the garden of Eden. That's what they're doing. They're the priests. But, it doesn't last, alas. And earth, you could say this two ways, but I prefer to say earth, exiled itself from heaven because the human said we want to rule we're not going to do it god's way so we say god you can have heaven and we'll have earth and so this divorce happens it's it's the first exile where we're ejected from eden because we want to rule earth and let god rule heaven so there's a separation so now we go from eden to exile There in the exile, God meets his people and delivers them out of Egypt. He takes them into the wilderness, and then he creates a second heaven on earth meeting place. It's called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, which is modeled exactly the way Solomon builds the temple here, the tabernacle is the one place on earth where heaven and earth are touching. And this is why God needs sacrifices, because the fallen beings must now come to him and re-enter his world. We must enter his world a different way, by dying to this world and entering into new life in his world. Um, the temple has patterns in which it's meant to replicate the Garden of Eden. Again, you can go listen to our studies in Exodus and hear that. Um, but just for a surface example, um, Moses builds the tabernacle in seven phases. 
There's seven specific sections where God speaks to Moses about building the temple. And then it finishes with um, uh, Moses saw the work that he'd done and he finished the work. Just as Genesis says, God saw the work that he'd done. He finished the work and God rested in Eden. And then the glory cloud rests in the temple, uh, the tabernacle. So we've got a temple again. We've got Eden, exile, tabernacle. And then the tabernacle becomes, as we're seeing now, the temple. And now the nations are being invited. Solomon in his prayer invites the nations. He invites Hiram. We're going to see in a minute that he, the Queen of Sheba comes to see this. The nations are now included in this temple. But like Adam and Eve, Israel decides, oh, no, no, no. We don't want God's rule on earth. We'll let God rule in his place and we will rule in our place. The kings create this distinction between God's throne and their throne. And so they, like Adam and Eve, rebel against his authority and his kingship and they sever heaven from earth. And so what happens? Once again, without God's rulership, we cannot rule. We're too weak. We are succumbed to our own desires. And so the kingdom falls and Israel is expelled from the land as Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And so here we go. We eat in exile, temple, tabernacle, exile. And they build a, they rebuild the temple. We read about that in the last few months. It's rink-a-dink. It's like, yeah, they're not even really worshiping God. They're not even supporting the priests. It's there. It's nice, but it's, ugh. And the glory of God never fills it. There's no record of that. Because you remember in Ezekiel, this was several years, a few years ago when we were in Ezekiel, um, we saw that the glory of God, I think it's chapters 11, 10, 11, and 12, the glory of God progressively moves out of the temple. And then it goes up to the Mount of Olives and on down the backside, bye-bye. That's why the exile happens because they cast God out of the temple. So he leaves, they fall, they rebuild this temple, but God hasn't returned until Jesus rides on a donkey he rides on a donkey. He comes up over the backside of the Mount of Olives. He comes down and then he goes right up into the temple. The glory of God has come back the same direction it went out. And he comes and he comes to the temple, not to fill it and glorify it, but to judge it. Because he says, destroy this body, John chapter. Remember in John 2, when he, when he judges the temple, they say, who are you to do this? And he says, destroy this body in three days I will raise it back up. And they're like, that's rubbish. You cannot do that. It's taken us, I mean, we had that terrible, like, redone one in Ezra, and it's been, uh, and then King Herod kind of makes it a little bit better, and it's propped up, and it's like, it's taken generations for this temple to be built. Who are you to say in three days? And then John puts a commentary there, right? He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So, uh, we have Eden, exile, tabernacle temple, exile. Then we have Christ, but Christ will go into exile as well. Christ goes into exile when he's crucified on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been exiled. He's banished out of the land of the living. He goes to the land of the dead. His body is broken as the temples were broken during the exiles. And then on the third day, he's put back together. He's raised up. He's built by the hands of God, not the hands of men, into 
a new body, a new temple. And so the body of Christ is the meeting place of heaven on earth. He is the walking temple. He's divinity and humanity, 100% each, both perfectly being united as one. And then his body becomes, we become his body. As we believe in him, we become part of the body so that we are now part of that intersection of heaven on earth. We're the expansion of this temple. And to prove it, when he goes up to the Father's throne, he sends forth the Holy Spirit as fire to come down upon his people. We are the new temple finally filled with the glory cloud of God. We are, yes, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Needs more of that. Um, we, um, we get to have reunion. Um, so here we are, the new Garden of Eden. We're told to bear fruit and we're told to worship God. We're the royal priesthood. It's all brought back together. This is heaven on earth right here. When you're in church, this is the closest you get to heaven on earth. I'm not saying that in heaven you're going to hear me for hours on end. Like, that's not going to be... That'll be hell on earth. Uh, earth on hell or what? I don't know how you say that. But, um, but what we experience when we feel those moments of union with Christ, this will be ever deepening for eternity without hindrance. This is heaven on earth. The bearing of fruits, the liberation of oppression, the giving to the poor, so that all people are propped up and given life. This is the kingdom of God. And this is what we get to model and practice The church, in other words, is supposed to be glorious. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to exhibit the splendor of Solomon. We're not there yet. We have a lot of rubbish in the temple, but we are getting there. And I don't know that we will ever get there, but we are doing our best to allow the presence of God to work in us. But what we will see one day is when Christ returns. So we've got this Eden, exile, temple, exile, uh, Christ, exile, resurrected, church, and then it goes one more step. This is the one you just can't describe. The, the, this last leg goes all the way up, up higher, higher than Eden was. Like me jumping. Um, higher than Eden was because that's the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God coming to man. It's heaven on earth. And as Isaiah and Habakkuk both prophesied, the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so this will be the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 is where you can read about it. And it says very clearly, God will dwell with his people. He will be their God and they will be his people. Finally, like Eden, heaven and earth are merged perfectly. But it's even better than Eden was because we are now unified with Christ. Whereas Adam and Eve weren't quite, maybe they would have been, but they weren't when they were first created. Um, probably we're supposed to grow up in that. But here we are, the church is growing up into that. That's the beautiful story of the temple in scripture. Now, that leads us to chapters 8 and 9. Because Solomon here becomes a picture of the glory to come that we have to look forward to, that we get to be practicing today. So chapter 8 is all about the wealth, the splendor, the accomplishments of Solomon. Um, you can read that on your own, but it's basically what you kind of know from Kings. It's like Solomon was a rich dude. He was a powerful guy. He had this whole horse trade and people would come all over the world to get horses from him. He was like the car dealer, you know? Um, that sounds so like, ugh. We have, no, no one likes car if you're a car dealer, but no one likes going there. Um, you feel used. But anyways, uh, he's got, he's like, the, Jerusalem's become the hub, the trade center of the world. This little city has been elevated to the mountain of mountains. That nations, Isaiah says, one day nations will flow to Jerusalem as the center of the earth. Come, let us learn the ways of the Lord. Um, uh, 
So we see sort of this forecast, like Jerusalem can be like this again. This is what the church is becoming. This is what we're trying to exhibit as we allow God's spirit to work in us. And then chapter 9, the Queen of Sheba. Verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem. Solomon didn't have to invite the nations. Now they're coming. This is one story, and we're meant, I think we're likely supposed to think that she's just the glorious of all the kings and queens that came. But like, in other words, the Queen of Sheba came. Well, you know the others were coming too. Because if she wanted to seek out his fame, all the other lesser ones wanted to seek out his fame. So the nations are coming. But this time Solomon doesn't marry them all and be led astray by them all. This time we're left without that little bit because there's hope for the church that we get to actually do what God wants to do in his people. So she comes, she hears of his wealth, she's astonished, she can't believe it. Um, and then in verse 5, she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, half the greatness of your wisdom has not told was not told me. You surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your wives. A little, maybe a little, a little hint there. Happy are these, your servants who continually stand before you. And she just goes on like, you are, wow, what a kingdom. Either this means that the tabloids were not nearly, um, boasting enough about Solomon. Imagine that. Um, or he is appreciating so rapidly that the report of what she hears, he appreciates more than half of by the time she gets there because the wealth just keeps accumulating. Whatever it is, it's just, we never hear anyone under-exaggerate things, do we? We were like, oh, is that amazing? We go, I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's okay. Not here. She's blown away that even the rumors were not big enough to support what she's seeing. This, brothers and sisters, is the city set on a hill. This is what Christ wants with his people. That the nations would say, wow, blessed is this kingdom. Blessed are those who are part of this. Look at the wealth and the glory and the splendor and the beauty. Not that the church is supposed to be rich, but the wealth of peace and patience and and wisdom and all the fruits of the spirit. That There is wealth in this people. And the world is hungering for something. I mean, I was just, I'm not really in touch with pop culture as much anymore. Um, I'm just getting old, but, um, I, I did stumble upon in looking for another video that I once watched. What's his name? Oh goodness. Here we go. See, I'm getting old. I can't do the top of my head anymore. Um, the comedian dumb and dumber. He's in that one. (laughs) Now you're, I know who the sinners are. Okay. Jim Carrey. Just kidding. Uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah. Jim Carrey. He's apparently he's had this like huge spiritual epiphany and he's like writing books about a spiritual awakening. And, um, this is not news. Like if anyone's following celebrities and culture, you know that there's a lot of these awakenings happening. People are looking for something beyond the emptiness of modernity and materialism. And the church has the answer. Like, we have the life God meant us to have because we are the temple. We're the Eden. We're what God created us to be doing and to be living in and experiencing. But brothers and sisters, we aren't relishing the glory and beauty we see in these passages. We don't recognize what Christ is doing in us. And what we instead is we focus so much on the lack of glory and beauty in the world. And we want to attack all of that. And now we're so hated 
We're so hated by our culture because we're only known for what we dislike. And we're only known for certain of our morals. And our morals are now being called immoral. It's immoral to tell people that they can only be married to one person or that sex is meant for procreation and marriage. It's immoral to tell people that their bodies are meant for a purpose. It's immoral. You just go down the line. It's immoral. Everything we say is immoral. Um... I want to close this by emphasizing rather the glory and beauty that we should own, grow in, and exhibit. We don't have to live in angst with clenched fists and making points all the time. God did not teach us how to be quick at the draw. You said that? Oh, yeah. Church has answers. I believe that we're not doing ourselves a service by playing the world's game and just trying to be better at it. So there's a, um, I was reminded of this book, um, gratefully, um, by Michael Beavers, who's reading it recently, uh, Beauty Will Save the World by Brian Zahn, because there's a wonderful, this, what, this took my breath away um, when I first read the very opening of the book talks about um, how a thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great of Kiev was trying to unify Russia. And... Um, he was looking for a religion that would unify the people. So he sends out his ambassadors to the nations around him and to go investigate the religions of the world. And they come back, and most of the reports are how austere this religion was or how abstract this faith was. But when those that were sent to Constantinople, which was the uh, capital of Christianity in the Eastern world, um, when those that came back from Constantinople, um, they came back with this report and that this is this report is what brought Christianity to Russia. And their description of Christianity was so radically different than the other religions. It was a no-brainer. Um, but you guys know, I mean, Russia is kind of a sketchy topic these days. But um, it's been one of the most Christian nations in the world for the last thousand years. We just, because the other side of the world, we disregard a lot of Russian stuff. But they've been a center of Christianity for a long time. Um, anyways, so, uh, here's what, here's what their report was. It said that, um, when we, when we went to Constantinople and they, the Christians led us to the place where they worship their God, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth for on earth, there is no such vision nor beauty. And we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among men. And we cannot forget that beauty. That's one experience in a Christian church. Is that what an outsider feels when they visit a Christian church? Is that what we're exhibiting from our lives as we meet and and talk to people who are not Christians? Are they saying true? All we know is that God dwells among men. Are they saying that we cannot forget the beauty of those people, of that place, of that God, of that worship? I think we forget what we have. And we forget the glory and beauty that God has destined his people to when we put winning over worship. There's a disease, there's a spirit of Antichrist working in American spirituality that has to win. And the church has completely surrendered itself to this. There's an unbeliever. Win them. I, I, I was ta- I've been talking to this um, woman who is 
desperately wanting to become a Christian, but she cannot get over the Christians she knows. And she's ascribed them to me. And that's exactly what they're doing to her. I will, I will convince you to believe in God. You need to believe in God now or you're going to hell. You need to, it's just really pushing pressure on her. And she's like, I don't know why you're different, but I can't get over that. And I think the reason that I've been able to talk to her for weeks now, we've been trying to get her to come. She's been to church actually twice, but she's left um, like literally five minutes into the service each time. Uh, she, and the reason is, uh, she says, I can't get past in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. She says, something in me freaks out. And I, we know what that is. Means you're coming before the true triune God. This is not just spirituality. And the darkness in her does not want to be confronted with the risen triune God. Um, but um, where am I going? She she's victimized by this mentality of this just brutality. This the church is right, and we're going to win the world, and we're going to convert people. No, not like that. We aren't. I mean, we're just we're just like every we're doing holy war at that point. We're like Islam if we're doing that. Just we're going to just dominate people. We just don't use swords. That's the only difference. We use our words. Um, Or, or this, like, we're trying to get the world to follow our morals as if the world had the power of Christ to accept those morals and live them. Like, is our mission here really to change the morals of our society? Is that really our mission? That's not very beautiful. It's rather to be that change and it's to exhibit that life and it's to show what salvation looks like in a person, not by shoving it down their throat or pressuring them, but by just This is what the temple of God looks like. When heaven and earth are united, it's glorious. It's beautiful. And you don't know whether you're in heaven or on earth. All you know is that this is God. We need more worship and less winning. Because this is what worship teaches us every week. We're losers who get to win only through Christ. We lost paradise. This is what we do every week. We start with... Hero children of the living God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we realize, yeah, we lost paradise. We, we aren't doing any of these commands. But then Christ tells us to stand. He's come for us. He's saved the worst of sinners. We have regained paradise through him. This is a very different posture than we will win the world with our brute force. So we forget our beauty and glory when we put winning over worship. And we just... We just need to understand that the Queen of Sheba was drawn because of the beauty and glory of Solomon. This is what will draw people. Be Christ in you. Do it. Don't overcomplicate this. The strategies of humanity aren't going to do it. Worship will grow in us glory and beauty. Keep worshiping. It's not a crime to work on this craft with Christ. In fact, maybe the church needs more, a little bit of healing time, so that we can be, once again, a proper light to the world. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's it. That is where the glory and the beauty reside, when the spirit of God works through broken vessels like you and I. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.